Hi, my name is Ramila, and this is Secret Life of Sibs. Millions of people across the world have special needs that affect their daily lives. We often hear about their parents' experiences, but we rarely hear about the people that grew alongside them, the siblings that are fundamentally changed by this experience. I'm one of those siblings, and I hope to share the stories of many more. Our guests today are Kristen Selix and Kara Kushner, both twins that are licensed clinical social workers at a work of heart counseling in New Jersey. Hi, Kara and Kristen. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having us. We're so excited to talk with you today. Yeah, it's going to be great. <laughs> so just to start off, tell me about yourselves. So, you know, things like what you do, where you're from, your sibling, obviously. Sure. I'll go first because I'm the oldest twin, so <laughs> I will I will take that. <laughs> Um, so I'm Kristen, um, licensed clinical social worker. Um, I work in a school and also in private practice, but I've had a lot of different experiences working in social work, which was definitely um, because of having a sibling with uh, disabilities. I think absolutely relevant to why I picked the career that I did. Um, I started out working with adults with disabilities, and then I ended up working with kids, and now I do disability and mental health, so both. Um, but I love all of it, so it's been a good journey thus far in my career and totally relevant to the SIB world. Yeah. Uh, hi, this is Kara. Um, I'm also a licensed clinical social worker, and it's funny that we're twins and we do the same thing, but it kind of works out, and we work together in one of our jobs. Um, I own a group private practice in northern New Jersey, uh, and we specialize in working with kids, teenagers, adults, uh, perinatal mental health, um, and one of our clinicians does couples work. So we kind of do a lot of different things in family systems, and um, I definitely went into the field in part because of our sister Katie. Um, definitely influenced me doing that, but I've worked in schools, and I used to work on a child study team as well, and I think that was very much driven um, by that experience. Um, I'm also a council member on the New Jersey uh, State Council on Developmental Disabilities, and I chair the Public Policy Committee, and that's a really fun experience for me to be involved in because I think I'm the only sibling on that council. Um, it's all parents, pretty much, who are family members um, who are a part of it, which kind of makes sense um, in a lot of the experiences I think sibs have. Parents are the predominant people in the conversation, so it's nice to be a part of that and to have a really significant role being a sib. First of all, I need to say I love the K names, uh, Kristen, Kara, and Katie. <laughs> um, so would you mind just sharing a bit about Katie and, you know, what types of diagnoses she has and how, maybe how that affected um, you growing up and Katie as well? Sure. Um, so Katie is um, a five years younger than us. So um, she was diagnosed when um, she was around three with autism spectrum disorder initially. So we were about eight, so like second grade. Um, initially, I think growing up, we didn't really have a, a strong sense of what that meant. But certainly as we got older, we started to understand the autism side of things. Um, but as a lot of people know who are siblings or people in the disability world know, autism is such a spectrum. So as she got older, we... Um, learned a lot more about her as a person and other areas of need she had. Um, she also has a pretty significant intellectual disability, so cognitively she acts much younger um, than her chronological age. Um, and she does have what um, appears to be like some obsessive compulsive disorder symptoms as well, um, which is interesting as a clinician who's studied some of this work. Um, there's definitely some overlap between some autism features with things like OCD. Um, 
So it's been interesting to kind of observe and kind of see how she's fallen to that when I put my clinical hat on. Um, but as her sister, it was definitely, I think we would probably agree there was ups and downs related to all of these diagnoses and how they interacted with one another within her and then within our whole family and the systems that we've navigated in our family and as far as kind of getting support for somebody with uh, a disability, getting support for our for our family, all of that. Yeah. And like to add, I would say, I think what's really interesting is Katie's also gotten various labels over her life related to mental health. Um, So um, she's seen a psychiatrist for medication specifically due to behavioral issues in her lifetime. Um, And so she's received um, various mental health diagnoses. And even for us as clinicians, we're not quite sure which ones are always most appropriate or reflective of what she's really experienced. But because autism is such a spectrum, I think to characterize her too, you'll hear a lot of siblings struggle with like, how do they describe their sibling because they don't want to be derogatory and they want to use the right language. So something that we kind of will often use to say is that she, um, she's pretty minimally verbal. Um, she is verbal, but it's not very conversational. Um, she definitely struggles with a lot of maladaptive behavior. She's been aggressive um, in the past. It's a lot better now, but certainly had been aggressive before. Um, and that was a big part of our experience growing up, I think, and our interest in the work that we do because of the, I, I would say, sibling trauma. That's something that I wish there was more research on was trauma and complex trauma and family systems of people with disabilities because there is such a level of experience. But yeah, I would say she's pretty nuanced as a person, um, obsessed with Disney, loves Disney, all things Disney. <laughs> Um, loves music, sings her heart out in the car. That's part of her personality. And um, she's just really funny. And she, we say she makes guest appearances. That's like her way. I think she likes, she's that person who likes to be isolated, I think, because of being on the spectrum. But when she likes to be around us, it's like, oh, Katie's making a guest appearance. So that's something else we use to describe her. That. Yeah. That's, that's a really, you know, good way of putting it that I think all of our siblings are nuanced as people, right? Just like any other person. And mm-hmm. sometimes it can feel reductive to put labels on it, um, especially with autism, because it is such a spectrum. Like you can't just pin down, um, like you can't form a picture of someone in your head just by saying that they're, they have ASD. But, you know, since she's five years uh, younger than you guys, I wonder, um, did you, what type of role did you have in her care growing up? Did you have to take on any additional responsibilities or did your parents mostly handle it? Yeah, we definitely did. Um, I, you know, part of our history too with Katie is that, um, you know, she, because she had a lot of behavioral issues, there was a lot of support our parents needed at times managing the behaviors and just kind of supporting. Um, we very much supported Kristen and I, each other, just needing to emotionally because we were kind of fortunate to have each other because as Sibs know, not a lot of your peers will understand that, that experience. Um, but I think we also significantly took on a caregiving role because when we were 11, our mom ended up having breast cancer and she's with us now. Fortunately, she's been in remission for years, but she was very sick, had to go through chemo. Um, and it was, it was pretty impactful. And so our father was working a lot. Our mom was really sick. So we kind of had to step in. We'd come home from school, help get her off the bus, maybe help her with whatever she needed to do. We were helping make dinner, laundry, things like mm-hmm. that. Yeah. I think we were around 11 when that happened. So it was not long after her initial sort of labels started coming out for her. And we started understanding as a family um, what she was navigating as a person and then how that would impact all of us in her life um, in the very beginning in the first few years. But um, 
it was a it was a rough time period because we were starting middle school, which is as we know, working with kids now in the therapy world and in schools. Like middle school is just hard for everyone. That's such a, t- a hard time for kids. Um, so we definitely felt the impact of just being middle school kids, but then also navigating um, being kind of pseudo caregivers, which I think a lot of siblings will take on sort of that parentified caregiver role um, or kind of shelving some of your needs as a kid yourself because you're trying to meet the needs of this person who's really needing a lot of support Um, and we definitely had a lot of other stressors going on which I feel like while our experience and our story might be unique to our family the idea of families navigating so many complex layers in addition to the disability lens is so common I feel like I hear that all the time so and I think it's it's really cool that you both you know ended up going into this line of work professionally, um, not only working with siblings but also just families in general who um, struggle with you know mental illness or any other type of you know disability. How has that been for you? Because I know that a lot of people um, say that what they deal with in their personal lives they never want to deal with in their professional lives. So has had did you ever feel that your line of work was too close to home or? did you guys strike a balance? Um, I will say, so initially when I got into, at first I wanted to be a teacher when I started going to school. I was like, I'll be a teacher. And then through taking different classes and sort of figuring things out in college, I switched my major a few times and I landed on social work, which I ended up loving. Um, And there's so many layers within social work itself. But um, when I was looking for internships, there was a lot of different opportunities, but one of the ones that um, wasn't so highlighted was working with individuals on the spectrum, but I actually ended up working initially with um, individuals in the spectrum who um, were much more verbal, who had stronger um, relationships with people outside their families and were just navigating more social skills challenges, but not as many of the cognitive challenges that we were seeing with our sibling, um, with Katie. Um So I took that on and then from there kind of continued on. And even after I finished graduate school, my first job in the field was working with um, adults with intellectual developmental disabilities and mental health issues and the group home and day hab setting, which I really enjoyed. But after doing that for a few years, I reflected a lot because there is a lot of what we call in the field transference and counter-transference where you sort of notice things that you have experienced kind of coming out when you're working with people or they even are transferring stuff to us. Um, So I looked at that and said, I can't work in this area of social work anymore. So I started gradually making my transition into the school system. And then from there, even within the school system, I was working on a child study team from there, then transitioning again to working in a school, but really more with the general education kind of population. So more strongly in a mental health way. Um, I still work with people with disabilities in private practice and even in the schools, I'll interact with students who have a label, let's say, but it made me want to shift to more mental health because it felt like that was a little bit more of what I wanted to focus on in a helping world, taking the empathy and the experience with me, but not feeling like it was so wrapped up in my sibling identity. So yeah, I, I actually similar in some respects. So I, when I was an undergrad, I wanted to be an attorney. Um, I wanted to help people in that regard. And then I, so I was going to take my LSATs and then senior year of college was like interning with a couple of lawyers and one of them fun. It was really funny. He said to me, well, if you want to have a family, like, don't do this because you're never going to be home. And I said, okay. And so I was like, oh, and then I, I switched gears um, and Kristen was doing social work. And I said, well, that looks cool. I want to help people. And, and I had also thought about becoming a teacher and decided it wasn't for me. Um, pursued social work, thought about doing more like nonprofit um, work, more like macro level social work and systems change. And then ended up switching over into doing clinical practice. Um, 
And I feel like being a sib, it's similar. It's, I can't just focus on this. It's a part of what I do. But what I love about this work is that you can do so many things. And I think also being a sibling has really helped me in these fields. So even on child study team, uh, working with families, working with parents, even just being able to self-disclose when appropriately, like, hey, I have a sibling on the spectrum. I, this is really hard. I, I can see what you're going through. And even though it's not been my experience or the same experience, I can empathize with you. It's helped me connect on a deeper level, I think, and be more successful with the people that I serve because they trust you because you get it and, and they want, they need someone who gets it. It's hard to, to talk about this stuff and to, and I think it's also helped me identify siblings in the families because siblings are so often ignored and not considered a part of the equation. And so I'm kind of one of those people who's like, Hey, what about, you know, your brother or your sister or talk to the parents about that and um, include them and get them services and supports and kind of recognize them in a way that we did not probably get recognized the way we needed to growing up. Yeah. I, and that's also something I wanted to ask you both is growing up, did, did you two feel like you had any resources, you know, people that you could kind of talk to about what you went through at home um, and how that was different than a sibling with another neurotypical sibling? Yeah, I think, I mean, we were really fortunate to have each other. That was the biggest yeah. resource probably was having each other. And um, it's, we joke around all the time that like we look at ourselves and we say, you know, yeah, like we have a really varied background. Like, of course, we became therapists who want to talk about their feelings because <laughs> it makes sense. We had so many things going on. Um, but, and so we definitely had each other, but we did not, there was really no outside recognition. There, like our, our teachers kind of knew and they were nice to us. And I think there was a heads up in the background, but it wasn't like we were recognized or supported. So outwardly, we didn't know other kids who had siblings with disabilities really closely. Um, even if our parents were like kind of networking or trying to connect with other parents, the opportunities presented to us to connect with the other kids in the family, if they existed, was not really a part of it. Um, and so it was very much that we relied on each other and and just and a lot of it was also just kind of relying on ourselves and kind of trying to figure it out. Yeah, I think um, I think what's kind of interesting is when we think about that and we look at sort of systems and why things are the way they are. I know we when we were growing up, it was the earlier 90s. And I think even when you look at like disability culture, a lot of kids with disabilities, um, it, it really was like about 30 years ago. Right. But um those kids were not often integrated into the public school systems as much. They usually went to like a private school or, you know, it's kind of segregated out because they needed services that were not incorporated into the school system. So it was really hard to identify other siblings because it was like your sibling was sort of on the outs of what's going on in your town and the school system. And I think that's been hopefully a shift that we even see when we work with sibs who are kids, um, that there's a little bit more awareness of the siblings now just because they're, um, you know, their sibling who's neurodiverse, let's say, just to make it more general, they're sometimes going to school in the school system or like there's more connection with parents. So I think that's come a long way, but we definitely um, didn't see that as much. Um, and I think even just when we were growing up, there wasn't as much awareness of how to talk about this stuff and how yeah, to... And more and, stigma. Yeah, there was way more stigma. I know um, there was a lot of moments where people were not very kind to us in public, like our family, because they didn't understand what was going on. And our parents got a lot of judgment of like, You're, why does your kid act that way? Why does your kid do that? A lot of shaming of parents for not, why don't why can't you control your kid sort of thing. Um, and I think as a result of that, our family became a, a little bit more of a closed system. And that was really a trauma to the family system itself. Because even now, I think there is some underlying level, not maybe amongst us, but probably our parents of 
you know, fear of trusting others and how they're going to respond because there was a lot of really um, painful experiences that they went through. And then the idea of having the vulnerability to reach out and connect with others, that becomes a little bit scarier. So you don't tend to do that. And we definitely had the impact of that, I think, as kids um, as a result of those kinds of experiences. So, yeah. Yeah. I think that that level of isolation, even on like a family level, not just the sibling level, is is very pervasive. It 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 makes an already a very difficult situation, and it take it makes it so much harder because you are hesitant to lean on anyone else. You're hesitant to entrust those really like that those vulnerabilities um, to anyone else. But it's really good that at least you guys had each other. I I think that's. As someone who's, you know, neurodivergent twin, um, you know, we're, we're each other's only siblings. And I remember asking my mom, like, why didn't you, you know, why don't I have another sister or brother? I completely understand now that I'm, you know, much more grown up, but I can imagine it must have been nice to at least have that. Um, and so another thing that I wanted to talk about is, Kara, I think at the uh, beginning you mentioned working in public policy uh, and being the only sibling on this board. Could you kind of tell us a little bit more about that and what type of work you guys do? Yeah, sure. So every state in, in our country um, has a DD council. They were created by the DD Act. And so um, I'm just a, I'm a council member as far as I'm a family member and our governor appointed me I, uh, to be a member on it. And basically what we do is we, um, a bunch of different things. And so my role really specifically, I'll get into because it's, there's so many things the council does. Um, but really, I just am helping to provide a facilitation of the conversation on the different pieces of public policy that are pending, going on, and creating a dialogue amongst um, amongst uh, all the individuals on this individual or particular, what do we call it? Wouldn't call it um, a committee. And so when we're working on that, looking at what's going on, I think what's interesting is that a lot of the folks, it's a conglomeration of parents, of professionals, and self-advocates, as well as um, me being a sibling. Um, and I think what's interesting is sometimes I'm, I find myself, um, it's really interesting with my perspective. Sometimes I'm really in alignment with the parents and sometimes I'm really in alignment with the self-advocates, which is kind of that idea of looking at the nuances of things of sort of like, okay, if we're going to have a policy of, you know, um, cameras and like monitoring of group homes, I'm going to be able to look at the perspective of, okay, yeah, safety for the individuals in the group home, as well as this perspective of like, wow, do I really want a camera on me when I'm in my living room in my house and kind of be able to think about it from that perspective too. um, And the perspective of that person being an individual. So I think it lends to the nuance more. I think siblings are often more apt to think of their of their sibling with a disability as like they can do that they're more able or like let's push them and kind of and parents I think oftentimes are more fearful and and protective and so there's a bit more of a, of a wanting to hold back or not wanting to push some opportunities at times so I think that lends itself my perspective of having a little bit of those both perspectives um, to looking at things a bit differently but it's it's really interesting to be a part of um, the work um and I wanted to do it because I because I think siblings are not often a part of it. And my perspective was, if we're not part of the conversation on these policies, that's pretty sad considering these policies that affect our siblings will affect us, especially when our parents are gone. So we really need to be engaged in those conversations so that 
we're shaping the very policies and procedures that will impact all of our lives into our adulthood and the end of our lives as well as, as we're navigating it. Yeah, that's very true that a lot of those policies ultimately, you know, you publicly, I think people think that parents are, are, you know, they shoulder the majority of the responsibility, but they're not always, they're not going to be here forever. Um, and oftentimes it is the sibling who takes on that role. Um, once the parents are unable did your family have any discussions surrounding that? Kind of not. I would say like in reflecting back and in having conversations with our parents now, which is several years post this happening. Um, but I feel like our transition into thinking about ourselves as more um, solidified kind of caregivers when our parents aren't here wasn't probably done in the best way, at least from our point of view as the siblings and then maybe even as therapists, like mm, maybe not the best thing to do, mom and dad. Um but when we were in, I think it was like our senior year of college, we were, we were 21. Um, our parents started the process with um, our, an attorney and with the court system where they lived because they wanted to petition for guardianship because our sister definitely, um, you know, based off of all the cognitive testing and everything, it was just deemed that she's not going to be able to make some medical and financial decisions for her best interest. So it's better if she has a guardian. So they went through the process of having that evaluated and then petitioning the court to um, have guardianship together as her parents once she aged out of, you know, adulthood. Um and then when we were 21, our parents were working with the attorneys after the guardianship process was started. And I remember coming home one weekend from college and there was an attorney from the county courthouse um, in the living room. And she interviewed me a little bit about, you know, like what my interests were in my sibling. And I was a little taken aback by it that I had to sort of, I guess, and, I, and part of me, I think, felt like, okay, it's good. They're vetting me. Like they want to make sure I, I care about this person who they're going to be putting in my hands. But another part of me was like, I can't believe I have to be investigated. I think that that kind of very conflicting feelings are pretty natural for anybody. And then there was another part of me that was thinking to myself, I'm 21 years old and I just am signing legal documentation to become a co-guardian. And it wasn't a discussion or a question. It was just pretty much an understanding from our parents that we would be doing this. Um, and I think, you know, now several years later, I think Kara and I, are, I would say we're, we're pretty confident and comfortable in taking on that role now. But at 21, to not have even had that be a discussion and more of just an expectation um, wasn't, in our opinion, the best thing. And mm -hmm. we've talked about our parents with that since. So, we're, you know, this is not like when this airs, they won't be shocked to hear that. <laughs> we, we've had this conversation multiple times with them. Um, and I think it kind of speaks to how families don't always have these conversations and parents and siblings sometimes have very conflicting opinions or um, struggle with looking at what's the middle ground of how we're going to move forward for the identified person who needs the care. Um, but yeah, definitely was not asked. It was sort of like told. And I think it even affected how we looked at like our future oh, yeah, planning to, uh, and like dating and marriage yeah. and other things as well. It's like, okay, now I'm like forever responsible for this person in the future. And I've had, I, I know like as a therapist, like I, I go to therapy too, because I think it's important if you're in a caregiving role to take care of yourself. And I've had therapists say to me, but like, do you have to do that? Like, do you have to have that responsibility? And it's very challenging because the sibs were so internalized to think, well, yeah, I have to do it. But then there's this other part of you that's like, do I have to do it? And I think that's a dance that we internally struggle with so much. And that I think on our sibling groups and things that we've connected with online, um, we all talk about that in our community as siblings so much, but so many other people do not understand that because they don't have to think about that. So. Yeah, I, 
I, what Kristen was mentioning too about the relationship piece, when I, when, when Kristen was being interviewed by this guardian ad litem at our house, when the guardianship process was happening and I was at college, I was not home and I wasn't far, but I didn't, I didn't come home for this. Um, kind of knew it was happening, but it wasn't really something that was discussed at all in terms of the nuances of it or how it was going to look in practice. So I was kind of like, all right, they're looking into this. And my parents called me and told me, yeah, everything's done. And when, you know, when we're dead, you guys are going to be the guardians. And I think just kind of hearing it like that was kind of like, oh my God. And I remember thinking to myself, wow, I'm 21 and I already have a kid in my mind. And not, not to infantilize my sibling, but you know, this idea of I'm so responsible for another person and that level of responsibility. And, um, I remember uh, Skyping with my now husband, who I was dating at the time, and really getting emotional talking to him about it. And I, I tell this story a lot when I do workshops on sibling needs. I said to him, you know, I got drafted, but you're choosing to enlist if you stay with me. And that's kind of how I characterized it of like, you know, not to make it sound like it's this terrible thing, but like it, it, it's a choiceless choice in a way that you feel based on that confliction as a sibling of like, you know, if I don't do this, well, what's going to happen? I kind of have to do this, but I, I don't, maybe I don't want to. And how do I navigate that? And it's very overwhelming. Um, and it's something that I think is not talked about enough. It's interesting because in my practice as a therapist, one of the things that I offer as a special service is to do sessions with families on future planning for siblings and when they're becoming a caregiver and talking about it as a family. And I have very few people take me up on that service, but I know it's a need. And I think it's because there's this assumption that, well, you're just going to do it. And I think that maybe that while that assumption may exist for siblings, it's really to the benefit of the family system as a whole that it's discussed and not just assumed because it's it's hard to be in that position and kind of it's daunting. And I think it kind of radicalizes the way you look at your own life when you're a sibling and what you feel opportunities are available to you because you might feel more limited or, or afraid to pursue things because of what your responsibility is going to be. Yeah, I mean, absolutely on a personal level too. Like I remember when we turned 18, I – just remember getting packages and I think it was in the mail to college or something and or when I went home from break and it was like just signing signing my name to be a standby guardian and you know there hadn't really been a discussion it was understood it was it was always kind of understood that I would be in that role when I um, was old enough and when my parents were no longer able to care for him Um, because my brother you know his mental age is at, at around two years old and um, he's uh, completely nonverbal. And I feel like that kind of expectation was understood from as, as long as I can remember. I remember feeling so responsible even when we were like seven. And yeah, I wish we had sat down and had an actual conversation about it, like my parents and I. But I don't know that they understand. Like, I still, I would have agreed. I would have agreed to sign those papers. It's not like I don't, I didn't want to. But it would have been nice to have that moment of acknowledgement that I'm doing something at this age that very few other people have to do. And it's something like whoever I date, you know, we're a package deal, my brother and I, you know, Um, and that's something that I'll have with me for the rest of my life. And, you know, you already kind of touched on this, but like for for you both, your whether it's romantic relationships or, or even friendships, um, how do you think just the, your lived experience of being a sibling and how has that affected affected those relationships? I mean, I think for me, definitely, in one of the things you just mentioned, choosing a partner. So um, 
my husband is wonderful with my sister, but I, I definitely put him through like some litmus tests to see how it was going to go. I remember the first time I introduced the two of them, we went to get pizza and my sister being herself was very impatient. His slice came out first that he took and she took his food right off of his plate. And, <laughs> and I, 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 in my mind had this mini panic attack of, oh, well, this is it. It's going to be over after this. And uh, it was nice knowing you. And he and he he kind of laughed and he said, "Man, she really knows what she wants." And he just kind of let it happen. And I was like, "All right, that was pretty good." So he he's very patient. Um, my husband's a teacher. I mean, he he's a he's a kind person. He gets it. But I've had to educate him a lot too, and he's come a long way in his understanding and his comfort. I, he was not exposed to this, and he's from another country, so his understanding of disability too was also cultural was a big piece of it too. Um, and I think. It's something that I've always considered. I actually just had a baby three months ago, and part of our congratulations, thank you. Part part of our discussions of like deciding if we wanted to become parents was, hey, there's a chance that we could have a child with a disability, and they could have autism, and you can't test for that. And so, you know, we did all this genetic testing because we personally were interested in finding things out. And while we didn't carry anything else that could be presenting an issue, you know, that's something that's still in the back of my mind I worry about and think about, and it affects my relationship as a parent significantly. Um, and even in friendships, you know, the people that we choose to be in our lives, there's a, a real sense of like, you better add up to being the person I need you to be, or I really can't include you in my life. Because I really, even beyond the treatment of my sister, it's I can't tolerate it for my own emotional well being. Like, I just don't need that. And so I think there's, it definitely plays a role. I'm sure same for you, Chris. Yeah, I think um, now being an adult and like, you know, sort of navigating, we have very different um, stories. Like Kara dated her boyfriend in college and then they were together for a long time and got married. And I was in the dating world as a young adult for a little bit longer than her and like you know, playing the field and like dating different people, sort of navigating. Um, but I always remember when I noticed things were going to get serious that I was was wanting them to meet my sister to kind of gauge if you're going to be worth it, I need to see if you're okay with this. Or even if you don't know what to do, are you going to be kind? And I think that's something that I've always started to really as an adult integrate is a lot of people get nervous. And my now fiance um, said to me, he's like, when we were going to have him meet her, um, I said to him, you don't have to know what to do because it's not expected. You didn't grow up with a person like this. How would you know what to do? So I don't have that expectation of you and really of anyone that's not a part of our community that we're all in um, because if you don't know what you don't know. But as long as you're kind and you have empathy and you're willing to lean in a little bit, I think that goes such a long way, at least for me and I think for a lot of us because people don't understand until they get to know and figure things out. But as long as you're willing to show up and be engaged and empathetic. I think that's huge. Um, and I have to say, I think for all the kind of traumatic moments we had earlier on, I think as time has gone on, um, I choose to see, and I think I could wholeheartedly feel that most people are good and most people do want to show up and be kind. It doesn't mean that you don't have those really horrible moments. Um, but I think holding on to the people who are pretty kind is important. Um, and then, yeah, weeding out the people who just, you know, they're not. And I think there are people who just for whatever reasons, like they're not at a place where they understand, they don't have the education on it. Um, they don't have the empathy and that's their work to be done. But then we don't, we have boundaries where we don't put those people in our lives for our own well-being. Because when we've all had this sort of complex relational trauma within our families, within the systems that we're navigating and all the other layers of this 
we don't have the capacity or the energy to kind of handle that anymore. So it's like, all right, then this is not, not for us and that's okay. So I've, I've always felt that I've always felt so lucky to have friends that, you know, I, I was able to kind of see through the, you know, the BS for lack of a better term, um, and, and find people that are genuinely good people. And Mm -hmm. it, you know, it, like you said, it's kind of a litmus test if you open up to them and, or even like, you know, have them meet your sibling and they treat them with kindness and empathy, like, you know, that they're a keeper essentially. Right. But okay. So we've talked about a lot of really interesting things and I wanted to ask you guys two questions that I always ask everybody. Uh, the first is what's one thing that you wish people knew about, uh, life as a sibling to a special needs person? I think boiling it down to one is hard. I'll be honest. Yeah. <laughs> I think, I think, I think I would say that everyone's experience is different and as equally meaningful as the next. Because I think that it, we can't paint a broad stroke on the sibling experience. There's a lot of things that unify us, but there's also a lot of things that make us so unique in our experiences. And so, I think collectively being able to look at all of those stories, which I think is wonderful that you're talking, you're doing your podcast, because I think that there is so much nuance here. I think sort of being able to look at the beauty and the similarity, but also the significance and the difference is really critical and key. And people need to look at siblings as individuals and um, their experience with their sibling may not be the same as the next person, especially in terms of they may not like being a sibling. They might have a struggle. They might love being a sibling. They might have good and bad days. That's all good and all okay. So I think just being able to take it all and look at it um, as valid and everybody's story is meaningful. Yeah, I think that's really huge. Um, the nuance, again, going back to that and being able to to look at all of it. Um, and I think really, I think if there's anything that people learn from us and sort of listening to these kinds of conversations is sometimes it Um, when we're navigating relationships with friends and significant others and even with our own family members I think even extended family members who sometimes maybe don't have the same lens within the immediate family if people can take the lead of the siblings the parents kind of looking at how we choose to navigate situations and taking our lead if they're not sure can be really powerful because we're immersed in this world so we can kind of guide people I think to a point and then also remembering that our siblings are individuals um so they can guide us too. I think as much as we tend to look at, you know, sibling life, especially when I go on Sibnet, I see a lot of people because it's a safe place talking about some of the challenges because there's not a lot of safety in the regular sort of sphere of life to talk about that because society sometimes paints like this very like um, sort of like infantilizing or um, sort of like yeah, rose, yeah, rose colored pictures. I know people call it like inspiration porn where it's like, okay, stop using my sibling for that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, you know, we try to balance all of that stuff and look at it as a whole. Um, and I think that's really important too, finding that balance and that balance is going to look different for, for everybody. Um, so that's why this question is probably so hard too, because there's so many layers, but I think if we're willing to sit with the ambiguity of all the layers and be accepting of it all being there, that's huge. Thank you for that. I know that pinning it down to one thing is hard, but the next question is also (laughs) asking, what is one piece of advice um, that you'd give someone else who grew up in a situation similar to yours? Um, I would say definitely connect with other people who have gone through or are going through 
um, maybe some of the specific struggles of sibling life that you've been going through because I think there's nothing like having support and being connected to other people with shared experiences that's for so many things that people go through in life but certainly for you know our experiences um, I also think there's a lot of power in therapy I really believe in that um, up until recently even though I am a therapist I never realized that um, some of what we navigated, especially having a sibling who had a lot of um, like physical aggression growing up, which we sometimes were at the other end of just by nature of, you know, living in the same household, um, that some of those situations are pretty traumatic. And I think you, we kind of try to put them on a shelf in our mind and pack them away. But then when you look at it a little bit later, you realize that that may have shaped you. And it's okay to look at that and acknowledge it and get support through, you know, processing it as an adult. Um, and if we can create space for kids, hopefully, who are navigating this stuff and they don't have to just put it on a box and forget about it, like maybe we had to do because those resources weren't available, that would be such a win. Um, but for those of us who are adults, I think, you know, finding the, the support to go there and look at that and make sure you have the empathy and the space to process it is huge. And then sometimes we'll process it and then you'll bring it back to your, the community that we have of siblings. So I think the two go hand in hand. Yeah, I would, I would tell a sibling, any sibling, I think... Um, if I had to boil it down to a statement, um, you matter and you've always mattered because I think that a lot of siblings don't see that they're, their significance or they don't feel they matter. There's a lot of, um, unintentional, oftentimes emotional neglect that siblings experience. Yeah. And so, and I think that goes back to the trauma piece that we're really, I mean, we're very biased as therapists, but we're very interested in that. And I think, and, and I think, um, to your point, I would say otherwise, you know, go to therapy, 100% go to therapy. Um, I think it's so valuable. I know we're biased, but I mean, we're therapists who go to therapy. We see the value in it. And and I think that it, it goes back to that idea of you matter. If you matter, you take care of yourself. And that's taking care of yourself. Being able to speak your truth, process your story, sift through the good, the bad, make sense of it and heal is, is recognizing and living that statement of I matter. So I would say that you matter and you've always mattered. Thank you guys so much. I think that's all the time we had today. But again, it, we, I really appreciate you coming on here and, and sharing uh, your personal experiences. Thank you for having us. We're so appreciative and we love that you're doing this. So thank yeah. you for including us. Thank you for taking the time to peek into the secret life of Sibs with me and our guests, Kristen and Kara. If you're a sibling, we hope you know that you're not alone. And if you're not a sibling, we hope you got to learn about a new perspective. Go ahead and follow to turn on notifications for upcoming episodes, and look to the description box for a list of resources specifically for siblings. Welcome to the secret life, and see you next time.